Hello and welcome along to a brand new episode of the only show that takes you right the way through the universe and then back again in about half an hour. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan. Our mission here, very simple. We are exploring the galaxy, learning all the science secrets that you've never been taught before. This week, we're hearing about a very special space mission to try and look at something in the universe, which is everywhere. Only problem is it's impossible to properly see and we know nothing about it. We have looked out to galaxies and what we call groups of galaxies or galaxy clusters. And we've seen things that make us think, right, There's got to be more matter. There's got to be more material there because there's got to be more gravity than what we're we're looking at. And we'll travel to space ourselves, to deep space high, to look at what you can do across the galaxy for work if you love art. Looks like those astronauts are having lunch. Their plates and cutlery look very high tech. Every single thing you see up here has been designed by someone using their imagination to make each thing as efficient as possible in terms of the space they take up, how they fit alongside other things, and crucially, how much they weigh. And I've got your questions to answer. This week they are on time zones and the super blue moon. Let's get to it. It's a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. And we'll kick things off with your science in the news. Over a week ago, India set down a robotic probe on the moon. The Chandrayaan-3 lander became the first one to land near the South Pole. Since then, the rover has been busy. It's been sending photos back, taking measurements of the elements that make the surface near the South Pole. It's found sulphur, oxygen, aluminium, calcium, iron, loads more. And there's a thorough investigation to see if there is hydrogen there. Hydrogen is very important because it's one of the main elements that build blocks of water and if there's water there well we could set up a little human population on the moon to explore more of space from also this week a tropical storm has swept across florida and other parts of the southeast of the usa Idalia, a major hurricane, was a Category 3 storm with winds of up to 125 miles an hour. And it's thought that almost half a million people are still without power around the region as the tropical storm causes utter destruction. Um, This is really, really sad news. So if you are listening from there, I hope that you're safe and I hope that you're sound. And finally, two birds, which have never been recorded in the UK at the same time, have been spotted in the Isles of Scilly. It's just off the coast of Cornwall. You've got a red-footed booby, which is normally found in the Galapagos Islands in South America. That's been spotted by a lighthouse with another one, a brown booby, next to it. It's a huge deal. These creatures are never really in the UK. Their flight here is a new phenomenon. That's something to be excited by. But also, we need to reflect on the changes in weather that might be causing these creatures to to go even further north than normal. Let's check in with Techno Mum then. She is our gadget genius here every week, exploring all the different gadgets, the tech, the engineering that goes into things that we use every day. Uh, This week with Techno Mum and Tim, her son, we're looking at something you do use every day, how they are made. It's all about touchscreens. Techno Mum, with the Institution of Engineering and Technology. Advancing and sharing technology. I love our touchscreen tablet computer. It's brilliant to download and play all the fun game apps. Unfortunately, our daft cat Misty loves it too. She always watches me when I'm playing Happy Fish and tries to pat the screen. Maybe she thinks the fish are real. I told you she was daft. 
Misty, get off. Mom, that cat keeps putting her paws on the screen. Oh no, she's made me fail the level. Come on, Misty. Oh, let's get you down from there. I dread to think where those paws have been. How do touchscreens work, Mum? How come my finger and Misty's paw can work the game? It's all to do with electrical charges. Come on, I'm making a sandwich. It might possibly help explain how they're put together. Right, tablet computers or anything with a touchscreen might look pretty thin, but just like a sandwich, they're made up of a stack of layers. The computer that makes the whole thing work is at the bottom. You can't see it, but it's very important. Ham or salami? Salami, please. On top of the computer layer at the bottom are various layers of glass to make the display crisp and clear. Lettuce or cucumber? Lettuce, please. Thanks, that's great, Mum. Glass doesn't sound that clever. Well, the next layer of the tablet is the cleverest one. It's just under the surface, and it's the bit that senses touch. It's called a conductive layer, or the capacitive screen. So that's the bit that can tell what my fingers are doing. Like in my Happy Fish game, it can tell when I've got the right fish in the right net. Mm, not quite. This high-tech layer can tell where on the screen your finger is. It sends that information back to the computer, which is where the game is really running. I was beginning to think that this was actually a bit creepy. I mean, we can sense when someone's touching us, but we're made up of skin and nerves and blood and stuff like that. How can a bit of computer do all that? This high-tech layer, it's not alive, is it, Mum? No, silly, it's not alive, but it has something in common with you. You're both carrying an electrical charge. It's too weak to feel, but the capacitive screen's electrical charge is disrupted by your finger, which carries a different electrical charge. Information about the difference is carried back to the computer for processing. If you imagine, the screen is like the surface of a smooth pond. It looks flat, but if you dipped a finger in it, it would send ripples out, wouldn't it? It's a little like that. You said that this layer is just under the surface. What's on top? Well, normally it's a strong protective layer that lets these electrical charges from your finger through, but stops the screen getting chipped or scratched. It also makes it easy to wipe off fingerprints, as well as paw prints. Hang on, though. When I try to use a pencil or a stylus for my games console on the screen, it knows they're not my finger. It's just because the pencil or your stylus don't carry a charge at all, so they don't disturb the electrical charge on the capacitive layer. And anyway, you shouldn't use things like that on the screen because they might damage it. Right. Touchscreens are pretty amazing, though, aren't they, Mum? And also, I can play some cool games. It's not just for games. You get touchscreens in the library, the doctor's surgery, all over the place these days. Not really as much fun as the apps on the tablet, though. Not everything has to be fun, Tim. Techno Mum, with the Institution of Engineering and Technology, advancing and sharing technology. More from Techno Mum next week. It's time for me to become the genius, right? I mean, I'm always a genius, but I have to work a little bit harder for it right now uh, because I'm answering your questions. If you have anything sciencey that you want answered on the show, leave it as a voice note for me on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslife.com. You can get there, find the Science Weekly page, big record button, bash that. Let me know your name, ask your way, ask your question. I will do all the digging to figure things out. Let's get the first one on. Hi, Dan. My name is Avir. I am eight years old, and I would like to ask, why is the time in other countries different? Avir, thank you so much for this question. Why is the time in other countries different? Well, it's because the Earth spins round on its axis. So different parts of the Earth go from not seeing the sun to being in the sun's shine, 
That happens at a different moment for every single part of the Earth because it's always spinning. Different countries get different days when they have sunlight at completely different times. So imagine a country in the far east of the world. That will hit the sun at one point, but a country in the far west on the other side of the planet will be in complete darkness. So for different countries to have a full day to make the most of the sun, they need to have different times because their day starts when the sun hits them and that's always changing. Now, for every 15 degrees you move east, you move an hour forwards in time. For every 15 degrees you go west around the Earth, you move an hour backwards in time. More or less, there's different strange rules in which... Uh, different countries kind of move to different time zones depending on parts of the year. It can sometimes split countries in twos or threes. But generally, that's what happens, Avir. Thank you so much for the question. Uh, this one is from Ben, and it's topical. Ben wants to know, what is a super blue moon? Ben, thank you for leaving this as a review on Apple Podcasts. Did you see this in the sky the other night? If you were in the UK or in the Northern Hemisphere, you might have spotted this. We saw a huge bright moon through the night sky. And it's a mix of two very strange events. You've got a blue moon. That's where we get two full moons in one month. This happens once a year because there are 13 stages of the moon through the year. We get 13 full moons and we only have 12 months. Because the months are different lengths, it means for one month we get two full moons. That's when the sunlight reflects back fully off every part of the face of the moon so we can see it. So you've got that blue moon. Also, you've got a supermoon, which means it's at the closest point to Earth that the moon can be, which means it gets big and it gets very bright. And sometimes people think they see a tinge of blue mixed in there, too. And it's very rare. If you missed it a few days ago, the next time that you can see a super blue moon is in 14 years. So... Stick that in your calendar. A little reminder, ping me a note in, what, 2037. Thank you very much for those questions. If you have one that you want answered next week, I'd love to hear you. I'd love to hear it, uh, your voice, know what you want, know your passion for the question. Do that by leaving it as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. This week, we're looking at one of the most strange things in the universe, dark matter. The European Space Agency's Euclid mission hopes to understand some of that most important but unknown things. Dara Patel is from the National Space Centre and hopefully can tell us more. Dara, thank you for being there. Let's go with the most obvious question. What is dark matter? You know, that's a, a funny question in the sense that the simple answer to that is we really don't know. So dark matter, we believe, is this elusive, this mysterious substance in our universe. And we call it dark in the sense that it doesn't really interact with anything. So it doesn't give off light. It doesn't absorb or reflect light. We don't really have any way of detecting it other than the gravitational influence it has on other objects. Um, so that's the only way we know or we believe it's there, but we can't actually see it. So we have no clue what it is, why it's there, and really what it does, apart from when we look into space, we can see light and other objects bend around something which shows there must be gravity there is that something right 
Yeah, so the idea is that anything that has mass, anything that's made of material, has a gravitational pull. So believe it or not, you and I have a gravitational pull, so we're pulling on the objects around us, but our mass, the amount of material we're made up of, is just so small that our gravitational pull is very small. When we think about the Earth, the Earth is so much bigger, it's got a big enough pull that when we try and jump off the surface of the Earth, we feel that gravitational pull pulling us back. And then things like stars and galaxies, they're even more massive. They have even more of a gravitational pull. And the idea is that we have, as in scientists in the past, looked out to kind of galaxies and what we call groups of galaxies or galaxy clusters. And we've seen things that make us think, right, there's got to be more matter. There's got to be more material there because there's got to be more gravity than what we're, we're looking at. What type of things have we seen that leads us to think that? So if we take ourselves back to the 1930s, there was a Swiss astrophysicist called Fritz Zwicky. And he was actually looking at a cluster of galaxies. So our galaxy is called the Milky Way galaxy, but we're not the only one. So we've got a nearby galaxy called Andromeda, uh, another one called the Triangulum galaxy. And we're all in this group of galaxies called the Virgo group. Um, but there is another group of galaxies out there in the universe, and it's called the Coma cluster. So it's just a group of galaxies altogether. And he was basically looking at these galaxies and he was seeing that some of the galaxies were moving very quickly. But when he looked at the bright material in that galaxy, the things that were giving off light to estimate how much material there must be there, there just wasn't enough. At that speed, some of those galaxies should just be flying off into the galaxy but there must be some extra matter there, some dark matter that we can't see whose gravitational pull is holding onto those galaxies. So I like to think of it like uh, if you're in a playground uh, and you're on one of those merry-go-rounds, if you spin too quickly on it, you'll get flung off. Um, so it's that idea that these galaxies were just moving way too quickly. There's got to be some extra material there that we can't see that is keeping hold of them. Uh, so we don't know what it is. Do we have any idea what it could be? and why it's so dark, and, and how big of a, an impact it might have in the universe. Yeah, so the, I guess one of the, the fun parts of this mystery of, you know, what the universe is made up of is when we think about the material that we know about and the material that we can detect, that only actually makes up 5% of our universe. So that means 95% of our universe is pretty much like unknown. It's a mystery. And we believe about 27% of that is actually what we call dark matter. So it makes up a significant chunk of our universe and a lot more than the matter, the material that we actually know about. Now, in terms of what it might be, uh, as we kind of mentioned, we, we don't really know what it is because we can't detect it, but there are a few theories. So one of those theories is that it might be called a, a WIMP, and that actually stands for a weakly interacting massive particle. So we think that there's a possibility that these particles could be created in an experiment uh, called the Large Hadron Collider, but actually we've never seen that come into existence. We've never seen that WIMP material materialize. So we can't say for sure that that's what it is. Another idea is it's a, a super light, what we call axion uh, particle. Um, and there's even more recent uh, research that has said that maybe um, dark matter actually comes from primordial black holes. So some of these black holes that were around at the beginning of the universe. So lots of theories, but we can't say for sure 
what dark matter is. But we're trying to find out. Tell us about the Euclid mission then from the ESA. Yeah, so the European Space Agency has put together a mission called Euclid. Uh, And Euclid is actually named after a Greek mathematician who was around uh, in 300 BC. And he is known as what we call the father of geometry. So he was basically looking at the shape and size of things. And that's what the Euclid mission is going to do. It's going to be looking at the size and shape of galaxies within our universe. So it's a giant telescope that we're going to put in space. It's going to map all these different galaxies. And by mapping where they are and how quickly they're moving away from us, we can get an idea of how the universe is changing. And that can give us a bit more of an idea about how much dark matter there might be, how much dark energy, which is this other mysterious substance there might be, uh, and just a better idea of what our universe is made up of. Does it have any idea of when it will hope to answer these questions in the mission? So I think that is a uh, a long-standing question in the sense that this mission launched 1st of July. It spent about a month getting to its home in space, and it actually lives near where the James Webb Space Telescope lives. Uh, so it's a one and a half million kilometers from the Earth. And actually, it's Uh, in what we call now a commissioning phase. And it just means that it's going to spend a few months getting all of its instruments and preparing to start doing its real science. And then it's got a six-year proposed mission. So for six years, it's going to be collecting data. But we won't see any of that data until at least 2025, when they do what we call the first science release. So they're going to be scanning the skies for an entire year. And in 2025, we'll see that result of that first year but it's going to continue to be collecting science even after then and sharing it after then. I think it will be uh, definitely a few years before we see anything conclusive, but actually I think this is going to bring some really interesting ideas about our universe. Now, just away from Euclid for a second, uh, the day that we're chatting right now is one day after India became the the first country to land uh, a lunar rover on the south pole of the moon, right? And it's got me thinking about how quickly technology is changing all around us in our life. And that must mean it's changing very quickly in space exploration too. How excited are you for what the next few years might bring when we explore space? And what kind of things do you really want to find out? Oh, it is so exciting. And I'm so glad that yesterday we saw a very successful landing of a spacecraft, a part of the moon that has never been explored by spacecraft before. And you're absolutely right, you know, 20 years ago or so at the turn of the millennium, we wouldn't have maybe even conceived that we were doing some of the things in space that we're doing now. Technology and developments are changing and advancing so quickly that it brings along so many exciting opportunities. And I think for space exploration, Uh, For me, in my lifetime, I would love to see humans set foot on the moon again, which is a real possibility, especially with the Artemis program that NASA are are putting together. But also to learn a little bit more about some of the planets in our solar system, because, you know, we know about Mars and potentially Venus, Mercury, Jupiter, Saturn, but those planets towards the edge of our solar system, Uranus and Neptune, they're actually still quite mysterious to us. And, you know, they're on the the, the outside of what we call our solar neighborhood. So I think with the technology and advancements we're making, we might be learning a lot more about those two planets in our solar system 
that we haven't learnt in all this time that we've been sending things out into space. Dara Patel from the National Space Centre, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Let's get to this week's Danger Stand then. Every week we take a look at some of the most mean, strange, unique and cruel parts of the universe. This week we're headed into the deepest parts of the ocean to take a look at an animal with a seriously sinister name. You'll find the zombie worm living deep under the sea. Not just under the sea, but inside sea creatures. Not just inside sea creatures, but inside their bones. The zombie worm has got a perfect name because it lives off dead animals. They're about five centimetres long, so really tiny. They feed on bones. When they find normally the skeleton of a whale in their travels that has drifted down to the seabed, they latch onto it. Then the female uh, zombie worms will drill down so other worms can burrow inside. And when they're there, they sweat an acid, and this acid dissolves the bone around it, which makes the fat and the protein free from the bone for them to guzzle down. Now, it's not just whale bones, it's any bones. Fish, cow, sometimes even human bones that find themselves down there. And they've got strange feathery tails that stick out the end of the hole that they've made in the bone, so their head is in. Right out the back, they've got these tails, that's in the water, and the tails have gills on them, which let them breathe. It's the perfect, perfect name for a devastating creature. And it just makes you think about the different ways all animals in the world have to survive, what they need to do, drilling down into bones. It makes you think that when you pop to the shops, you've actually got it quite easy, right? And it's perfectly fitting for the zombie worm. Let's take a trip to Deep Space High to finish off the show this week, the smartest school in the solar system with Professor Pulsar and the rest of the team that are there to teach you all about strange things across the universe. This is part of our Space for All series. It's the newest one. We're learning about the different types of careers that you can get in space exploration because there's loads more jobs out there than just being an astronaut. In this week, we're finding out what you can do if you love art and design. Deep Space High, Space for All. Alright, settle down. It's time to have another look at all the different space jobs that there are and where you lot might fit in. I still haven't got a clue. I just think maybe I should stick to watching space shows on TV. Well, we'll see. Who else would like to tell us about a hobby they have or a lesson they enjoy? And we can see how you could contribute to space exploration. All right, Z, you put your tentacle up first. Well, my favourite lesson is art. I love drawing and designing. I like imagining all the planets we haven't yet visited and what new spacecraft might look like and just being creative, using my imagination. Excellent. Art and design require imagination and no one would have gone into space at all without imagining what it might be like. But drawing spaceships, it's not really the same as travelling in one. (laughs) But it's still important. Come on, I'll show you. Computer, simulation of the International Space Station, please. Welcome to the ISS that orbits around 250 miles above Earth. Budge up, Quark. We're trying not to get in the way. It is a bit crowded, even for a sim. That's right. Take a look around. See how much equipment there is. It's not just computers and spacesuits. There's all the equipment to make everyday life as comfortable as possible. 
Looks like those astronauts are having lunch. Their plates and cutlery look very high-tech. Every single thing you see up here has been designed by someone, using their imagination to make each thing as efficient as possible in terms of the space they take up, how they fit alongside other things, and crucially, how much they weigh. Who cares how much things weigh? It's space, and, you know, it's weightless. <laughs> Maybe this'll help. Computer, let's have a sim of the launch of SpaceX's Crew Dragon spacecraft. Three, two, one, we have lift off. Everything has to come here from Earth, and because of gravity, huge amounts of fuel is needed to lift the spacecraft from the ground. The greater the weight of the equipment, the greater the amount of fuel that's needed. Creative design not only helps make spacecraft lighter, they also help make them more aerodynamic. The G-force is incredible. It's pushing me down into the seat. Well done, Sam. You just spotted another design feature. G-forces can be uncomfortable. Well, on your bum. And everyone is affected differently, because just like you lot, astronauts come in all shapes and sizes. Over 50 years ago, NASA developed a material that could mould the astronaut's shape and then return to its rest state when not in use. Hence the term memory foam. I've got that on my bed back on Earth. It's super squishy, but doesn't sag. And I bet you didn't realise you had a bit of space history in your bedroom. So as you can see, creative people like designers make a real difference to spaceflight and life in space, as well as helping inspire us all. I can't hear myself think. Computer, end simulation. Space exploration isn't just for rocket scientists and astrophysicists. Even though they are important, being creative is a great way to solve problems, wherever they may be. Well, I'm hopeless at art and design, but I see what you mean. Stick with it, Sam. Plenty more topics to get stuck into. Next time I'll be asking some more of you about your hobbies and interests. You may be very surprised at how they fit into space exploration. Not as surprised as I'll be if you ever leave the room quietly. Class dismissed. Deep Space High, space for all. With support from the UK Space Agency. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash space. And that is it for this week's episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. If there is a question you want answered next week on the show, make sure you leave it as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. While you're on the free app, you can get loads of our brilliant podcast series there. We've got them on Google, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your shows. And Fun Kids are our children's radio station from the UK. Listen on your DAB radio, also on the free Fun Kids app, on your smart speaker, wake it up, ask it to play Fun Kids, and you can get us at funkidslive.com, wherever you are too. Alright, um, it's got some amazingly pink and white flowers. The leaves look quite kind of, like, um, kind of furry, you know what I mean? It's a warm spring day in late March, and ever since the leaves have started to come out, Roby Joe has been wondering why some trees lose their leaves and some don't. And also, like, how the trees know when it's time to shed their leaves. To find out, join us on the Conversations Curious Kids, wherever you get your podcasts.